Hello and welcome to Mysteries and Mimosas. My name is Max Sterling and I am here with your co-host and my lovely wife, Aria. Hi everyone. Hey Aria. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the strange disappearance of Matthew Pendergrast from the year 2000. But before we get into this one, I'm going to run Aria through some short trivia from the year 2000 so we can remember together what the world was like that year. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one. The 2000 Summer Olympics were held in which city? Oh, I don't get options. I'm not giving you any options. This is easy. Salt Lake City. Okay, I'll give you some options. (laughs) Salt Lake City. Um, We'll go with Sydney. We'll go with Tokyo. And we'll go with Berlin. I still think it's Salt Lake City. You would be wrong. Zero points for you. The 2000 Summer Olympics were held in Sydney, Australia. And Australia will host the next Olympics again in 2032. Okay. Did you not know that? Obviously, I didn't know that, Mm. Max, or else I would have gotten the question right. (laughs) Question number two. Which reality show got its start in America in 2000? American Idol, Survivor, The Amazing Race, or The Bachelor? The Amazing Race. Man, that's such a good show, right? But it's not. It's Survivor. It was Even Survivor. better. I thought it was, that Survivor was in like the late 90s. Okay. okay. I feel bad for you that you're losing this bad, so I'm going to give you a redemption point. Who was the winner of season one, Survivor? Uh, Rit- Rich. Who's the guy that would walk no, around I naked? Know, I know who he is. His name was Rich. Richard Hatch. Richard Hatch, yeah. yeah. I'll give it to you. You knew it. Of course I did. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I remember that season. All right, one for one. Question number three, and this is your last chance to win this week's uh, this week's trivia. You ready? I'm ready. In the year 2000, what was the highest grossing film? Give me one of the top three, and I'll give you the point. Question number three. In the year 2000, what was the highest grossing film? Was it Gladiator, Castaway, Mission Impossible 2, or How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Castaway. That's a really good guess. Castaway was a great movie. I know you don't like it, but I don't. I think it was I thought horrible. I thought Tom Hanks did a phenomenal job yeah, talking to a volleyball. The movie was so boring. I didn't think so. I liked it. Was it Gladiator then? It was not Gladiator. No. This one will surprise you. You got two guests left. 50-50. Well, I know The Grinch was a, a big deal, but I thought that was in 2001. No, it was in 2000. Oh, okay. But it was Mission Impossible 2. Oh, well, wouldn't yeah. have gotten that right anyway. I know. I tried to throw you off by saying it would surprise you. You hmm. should know me better by now. I've never seen any of the Mission Impossible movies, so... Eh, they're okay. I'm not a fan. Yeah. I am a fan of The Grinch Stole Christmas, though. I love that one. It, Jim Carrey f- did the best. He, like, they couldn't have picked a better person to, to be that character. Oh, no, no. He did a good job. Yeah, it was... Yeah. All right, so... Geez, you got one one out of three. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. You know, thank you for being kind. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't do very well in trivia. I don't know what it is. Maybe, you do better than I would do. You know, I'd get them all wrong. I know. I think maybe I just. I don't know. Maybe all right, I'm next nervous. week. Next week, trivia me. Next. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got it. All right. All right. Uh, enough of that. What's our mimosa recipe? That's the important thing. Today's mimosa recipe is an orange creamsicle mimosa. 
Yum. Yes. So that one requires two cups of chilled orange juice, two tablespoons of chilled heavy cream, two teaspoons of granulated sugar, and two cups of chilled champagne. All right. So tell us what we're talking about today. So we just finished up three episodes from Tennessee and Kentucky, and today's case takes us southwest to Memphis, Tennessee. Three years after the disappearance of Lucy Meadows and the kidnapping and murders of Jackie Beard and Morgan Violi. Today we're talking about Matthew Pendergrast. In December of 2000, Matt was attending college in Memphis, Tennessee, when his vehicle was found abandoned 120 miles away in the neighboring state of Arkansas. Matthew was never seen or heard from again. Matt was born on January 4, 1977, to his parents Mary Ellen and Jeff Pendergrast. From a suburban town in Atlanta, Georgia, Mary Ellen worked as a community care nurse for DeKalb County, and Jeff is a retired plastic surgeon. Matt was a very unselfish, kind, and caring person. He is remembered as the type of person who could lighten any serious conversation, and by all accounts, Matt was a very active person. He was a wrestler, he played goalie for a soccer team, and he ran cross-country for track and field. Matt was also very musically inclined. He played the drums and other percussion instruments. Matt was described by one of his friends as the perfect balance between an introvert and an extrovert. So you mentioned that Matt's mom was working as a nurse and his dad's a retired plastic surgeon. So obviously, Mary Ellen and Jeff played a significant role into shaping Matt into the person who he is you know, or was, or, you know, who you described. Without a doubt. In fact, at the time of Matt's disappearance, he was attending classes at Rhodes College, a four-year private co-educational college specializing in science and liberal arts. In the first two years at Rhodes College, Matt was following in his parents' footsteps, studying pre-med, but after taking a trip to Mexico, Matt changed his major to Spanish. That's impressive. To change your major from pre-med to Spanish says a lot about who Matt was. In the summers of 1999 and 2000, Matt volunteered in an orphanage outreach program in the Dominican Republic. This experience inspired Matt to set new life goals. Matt quickly became interested in starting his own nonprofit organization to help orphan children. Matt had big plans to work work for an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization, to learn about that organization's fundraising methods, the legal aspects of it. Um, Matt was hoping to take all of that information and use it to help him when he started his own nonprofit later in life. That's also really impressive. So how old was Matt when he was missing? Matt was 23 years old, and he would be 47 years old today. So at 23, not only does Matt have an incredible reputation with his family and his friends, but he also has like these plans to make a very real and very true impact in our world uh, because obviously he gave up his you know, dream of studying pre-med to help orphans. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's very incredible. On December 1st, 2000, Matt was attending Rhode College, finishing up his last semester when he vanished. Matt was just two weeks away from graduation. The night before, Matt appeared in a play on campus. The play was titled Between Pancho Villa and a Naked Woman. Matt was finishing up his degree requirements, and he was scheduled to attend his Spanish class at 9 a.m. that morning, but Matt never showed. Matt wasn't living on campus. He was renting a room from a lady named Margaret near the school. Margaret remembers hearing Matt moving around before leaving the house between 7.30 and 8 a.m. that morning. 
So the timeline provided by Margaret is consistent with Matt leaving to attend his 9 a.m. class, right? Exactly. So up until this point, everything seems normal, but this is the last time Matt was reportedly alive and well. But another strange thing happened. One of Matt's friends received a message from him at 7.30 that morning, which said, everything's all right, no problem, I'll talk to you later. Hmm. And that was a voicemail. So not like a text message, but a voicemail. That same friend recalled talking to Matt the night before until about 2 a.m., during which Matt was described as upbeat. During that phone conversation, Matt was discussing an outline he was putting together for one of his final papers. Yeah, that is a strange message, but whatever Matt had going on, he must not have seemed too concerned, you know, to leave that message. I wonder if police ever questioned whether or not Margaret was able to determine if Matt was alone in the house, based on the sounds that she heard. I mean, I would imagine if she heard another person's voice, she would have reported that, and that would have been very apparent, but is it possible that she could have heard two people in the house without without realizing that it wasn't two people and it was, you know, just assuming that it was just Matt? That's an interesting thought, but nothing that I found in my research indicates Matt was with someone when Margaret heard him in the house that morning. I'm not sure if that was ever considered by the police or ruled out or or anything. I didn't see any information related to that. Okay, that makes sense. Depending on how close Matt's room was to the college, leaving at 8 a.m. would leave Matt enough time to meet up with someone, right? So even if Matt was alone in the house, maybe Matt had plans to meet with someone that morning before going to class. Oh, it's definitely enough time to meet someone if Matt had that plan. Matt was renting a room less than half a mile away, which is only about a 10-minute walk. But again, we don't have any information to believe either of those scenarios took place. Okay, but if he only lives like a 10-minute walk away from school, and he left his room at 8 a.m. for his 9 a.m. class, I mean, if my calculations are correct, that would place Matt at his classroom at 8.10 you know, 10 minutes after 8, assuming that he usually walked to class. I'm not going to double-check your work on this one, but yeah, that sounds that sounds about right to me. If he was walking, like you said, and not driving. If he was driving, it would have been even quicker. Oh, of course. So I think it's easy to conclude Matt had something planned prior to class then. I don't know if it's necessarily, necessarily related to the case, but he could have, you know, left early to go study for his finals or go get breakfast or, you know, maybe go grab a cup of coffee or... You know, like like I said, maybe he was meeting up with someone unexpected. The next day, Mary Ellen answered a phone call from a man by the name of Joe Murdahl asking to speak with Matt. When Mary Ellen told Joe that Matt was away at college in Memphis, Joe told Mary Ellen he found Matt's Toyota 4Runner parked on a levee inside a private duck hunting preserve in Lenoke County, Arkansas. This preserve is known as the Bayou Meadow Preserve. Joe said he and his friend went to the preserve to hunt at about 10 a.m. on Friday, December 1st of 2000, during which time Joe said the forerunner was not there. However, when Joe and his friend returned at about 2 p.m. that day, they found the forerunner parked on the levee. Joe said they left a note on the windshield asking the owner to remove it, but the next day the forerunner was still on the levee, unlocked, with the keys in the ignition. Okay, so let me get this right. Margaret says Matt left between 7.30 and 8. He was scheduled to attend his Spanish class at 9 a.m., just a few minutes away from his room, but he never showed up. And then sometime after 10 a.m., Matt's car is found in Arkansas. So how long of a drive is it from Rhodes College to this preserve? Do you know? 
It's about a two-hour drive. Okay, so that timeline supports Joe's witness statement. So if he leaves at 8 a.m. and heads directly to the preserve, that would get him there right at 10. But I'm guessing Joe didn't see his car there at 10, like he said. So he could have showed up anytime after 10, but before 2. So this timeline's making sense. Right. Based on what we know. Right. So the next day, when Matt's car was still on the levee, Joe opened the glove compartment in the Forerunner to look for the owner's contact information. Yeah, I was wondering how he... How he got Mary Ellen's phone number. Yeah, he, uh, Joe found a receipt for an oil change which contained Mary Ellen's phone number. So obviously when Mary Ellen and Jeff learned Matt's forerunner was, was a state away in Arkansas, I'm guessing they knew something was wrong? They did. Mary Ellen first called Margaret, who, if you remember... Was the landlady? Was the, the landlady, yeah. yeah. But they couldn't reach Margaret, so they called Rhodes School Security. School security went to Matt's house and obviously found no sign of Matt. Because the circumstances were so suspicious, the head of security sent an email to the students asking for information related to Matt, and when law enforcement was called, they eventually conducted a search of Matt's room, which found was found to be a mess. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a college kid, so yeah. most college kids are messy. Yeah, perhaps. Two days later, on the 3rd of December, the Lonoke County Sheriff's Department, Arkansas State Police, and the Arkansas Game and Fish launched a grid search in the area of Matt's Forerunner. It didn't take long before a helicopter, used in the search, located a pile of clothing only 100 yards away from the levee where Matt's Forerunner was found. The clothing included Matt's shoes, socks, a dry t-shirt, a pair of pants, wet from the knees down, and a wallet containing multiple forms of identification and $46. But the weird thing about it, Matt's clothes were found in a neatly folded pile, which apparently was out of character for Matt, especially considering when they searched Matt's room, it was a mess. Yeah, it's very weird that his clothes were found neatly folded. And why were his pants wet from the knees down? I mean, do you think he fell in the water or like what? I mean, it's just really weird that that's the only thing that's wet in his clothes. It's possible, but apparently the water in that area is deeper than knee length. So if he fell in, all of his clothes would have been wet, not just his pants from the knees down. Okay, and his wallet was found with money, which indicates it wasn't a robbery. Assuming that foul play was a factor, you know, it definitely wasn't money-oriented or money-driven. Well, police then ramped up their search efforts, using divers, cadaver dogs, and boats to search the heavily wooded area. Matt's parents decided to stay back home in case Matt showed up, or in the event someone called to demand a ransom, but no signs of Matt were ever found. So I guess the question is, what business did Matt have in Arkansas, right? Yeah, well, Matt's parents said Matt has gone camping in the Ozarks before, but neither Jeff or Mary Ellen knew of any reason Matt would have been near the Bayou Meadow. Okay. Investigators impounded the Forerunner and took it to the state crime lab for processing. Inside the car, investigators found Matt's backpack, which contained journals of poems, reflections, observations of life, death, and nature. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, one of the journal entries included some strange writings about silver elves. Apparently, the writings included entries about seeking immortality and walking into the water to become one with nature. Another journal entry included a description of cold mud in the woods, lying down in the icy water, and feeling his blood turning into ice crystals. Yeah, 
that's some creative writing. I don't know, just because there's, you know, these strange journal entries about silver owls doesn't necessarily mean Matt walked into the water in some kind of weird effort to seek immortality, right? Mm. I mean, everything you've told me so far about Matt tells me that this theory doesn't make sense at all. I mean, he's a very intelligent person with huge life goals. I mean, he changed his, you know, his, uh, his major from pre-med to Spanish because he visited, you know, Mexico. He had this big, huge plan to help orphan children. And so everything indicates Matt was super focused on finishing his degree and to start working on this nonprofit, nonprofit organization. So his absence from the Spanish class on the morning of his disappearance, to me, that's a sudden and unexpected event. I mean, I don't think that's a planned event. You know, he was two weeks away from graduating and everything points to a highly motivated individual to finish his degree. I mean, think about it. Even Matt attended the play the night before to fulfill the requirements of his degree. So he's super motivated to finish school. You know, I'm just saying, I'm sure that Spanish class at 9 a.m. was also a requirement, and I'm sure he had final exams to finish. He was only two two weeks away from graduation. So even if he was interested in seeking this immortality through some type of water source for silver elves, I just don't think he would have traveled all the way to Arkansas to do this. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. He seemed to have his life kind of planned out in an order. And he was working toward those plans and those goals that he had set for himself. He even was talking to his friend about an outline that he was doing for a final paper up until 2 a.m. that morning. So in my mind, he's still thinking about graduating and, you know, finishing his degree and all these things like up until 2 a.m. that morning. So I agree with you. It doesn't seem like it was a planned thing. It seems like it was very unexpected and out of character for him. And you're right. That's a good point that you make. If indeed he was involved in this water source for immortality, there are water sources closer to I'm his sure college, right? Than all the way in another state, all the way in Arkansas. So I, that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, if he's, if he's suicidal, sure, that makes sense. That makes sense too. you know, that he would, that's a sudden event, suicide, homicide, kidnappings, those are sudden events where, you know, again, it's, it's kind of an anomaly in his behavior where he's, he's doing all these things to prepare to graduate. And then all of a sudden it just stops. Um, but you know, I don't, there's nothing to indicate that he's suicidal at this point. No, his friend actually said that he was upbeat during their phone call. But again, we don't, we don't know for sure. You, you hear all the time about people who are suicidal and they're like, on the phone making plans for things, and then the next day they commit suicide. Oh, yeah. So we never really know the intricacies of what Matt's going through or what's going on in his mind. But from the outside looking in, to me it seems I didn't see anything indicating that he was suicidal. Yeah, and you do bring up a good point with that because, again, it's an unexpected event. And it's unexpected for those people around them because sometimes – and a lot of times, actually, people portray this happy, upbeat, you know, persona just to not arouse any suspicion or not, like, make people around them worry about them, you know. And the perfect example of that is you just take take a look at Robin Williams. You exactly. know, nobody ever expected him to commit suicide, but mm-hmm. he was suffering inside, and he had that unexpected event, so. Yeah, I mean, you... 
normally find, and again, this is in a general sense, that people who are truly committed to following through with the act of suicide aren't going to necessarily give those warning signs ahead of time because they don't want someone to stop them. This is something that they have in their mind that they're going to do and they don't want people to know about it. So they're going to go off and, and, and do that. So for sure, again, it's, you know, that's a very general sense of, you know, suicide. Everybody's different. Every case is different, but you know, like I said, us looking at this research, it just, there was no indication of it, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I agree. So Jeff and Mary Ellen actually hired a private investigator. Both the private investigator and Matt's parents believe Matt's clothing was staged. Mary, yeah, it seems yeah, like it would be. Yeah, it wasn't how it was neatly folded. Mary Ellen thought it was very uncharacteristic of Matt to fold any of his clothes. In fact, when police searched Matt's room in Memphis, again, they noted his room to be a mess. But when Mary Ellen went through Matt's room, she thought the messy room was typical for Matt, describing an unmade bed and various clothing near a suitcase. Well, you know, if Mary Ellen's like any other mom in the world, she would know best because she's probably spent most of her life, or at least a great deal of her life, picking up after Matt, kind of like I spend a great deal of my life picking up after you. Okay, well, I was going to say, of course, because she's his mom, she's going to know better. But then you added that tidbit about how you clean up after me and that's that's just funny yeah you're right that's not true anyway. <laughs> not at all sorry go ahead yeah okay i just have to it's throw the this out there around. yeah for sure it is. like i admit it i mean the laundry basket is here it's like right here and your clothes are right next to it you couldn't you know you just can't take that extra effort to put yeah, them in the I basket just, i just want you to see that they're there and wash them first that's all okay it's it's a life hack <laughs> no no it's not <laughs> Okay, anyway, sorry. It's okay. not. This is not about me. Let's go. Right. Continuing. So the private investigator also found another suspicious incident that happened three weeks later in the same area where Matt's car was found. Okay. On December 28th of 2000, a trooper came across a man in a Cadillac who ran out of gas. According to the trooper, the man was shaking uncontrollably, but the trooper assumed he was shaking because it was cold outside. While the trooper was in contact with his man, another motorist arrived with gas and the man went on his way, but not before the trooper took note of the Cadillac's license plate number. That's a typical trooper for you. I mean, I'm, seriously, I'm surprised this trooper didn't write this man a ticket and tow his car just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hey, now. Well. Be nice. I'm just saying. Okay, so, yeah, you can give this trooper a hard time, but troopers pay attention. They're very detail-oriented. And thanks to him, we have a license plate number because he took it down. Okay, so yeah, that's fair. It's more than fair. So good good on that trooper. Listen, I respect what troopers do. I don't write tickets for a reason because I myself speed, <laughs> right? And I don't want to be hypocritical because I'm not writing speeding tickets unless you absolutely deserve it. I'm sorry. That's just my opinion. And so that's why I would not make a good trooper. I'm the first to admit it. That's why you're not a trooper. So, Well, I'm not a trooper for various reasons, but that's one of them. I'm not writing <laughs> tickets and um, not, yeah, well, not interested in doing that job. I mean, God bless them. There's a place for them. They keep us safe. They, you know, investigate the crashes that we do or that we have. And, you know, they slow us down. And In they fact, they slow us down so much during rush hour, they make me late to work almost every day. Oh, my gosh. 
they take drunks off the roadway. Yeah, no, I said that they have their place. a special place in my heart for troopers, and you're wow. you're hurting my heart right now with your commentary. So. That's because you used to be one. I know. So, so. I'm just okay. Anyway, it's well, not about the trooper, and it's not about you. You you you're getting in your feelings. You need to right. continue. Okay. Anyway. According to the private investigator, later that day, the driver of that Cadillac apparently broke into a nearby house, and when the homeowner came home, she yelled at him to get out, at which point he said, oh, I have to go, the lady, the lady of the house just came in. Really, <laughs> who says the lady of the house anymore? I do. I'm curious, like, the age of this person. Um, I do, I say, I <laughs> uh, wish the lady of the house would pick up my clothes next to the laundry hamper. <laughs> oh hamper. my gosh. And as the man walked out of the house, the homeowner noticed he was carrying a cell phone. Okay, so he's on her phone, but he has his own cell phone. I don't know. Maybe he didn't have reception. Because this was, what, in the year 2000? So he had, like, one of those big brick phones. Maybe it probably didn't have no, reception. it's probably like a Nokia. Oh, That okay. was popular back then. I you guess didn't have so. a ba- I mean, are you talking about a bag phone? No, no, no. Like, the big... Giant Nokia flip no, phones from like no. no that was that was way earlier. Okay. Yeah, your time. No wonder you're bad at trivia. <laughs> Whatever. So when the man left, she picked up the phone, pressed redial, and it was connected to a convenience store in North Little Rock. Again, like good job on her. Yeah. For pick for think for you know thinking. Oh wait, I gotta pick this up and see who he called. Wow, right. That's that's pretty good. Good well, detective and, work on her part. And I just want to say, I mean, you you mentioned it, but just because this man has a cell phone in his hand doesn't mean the cell phone was in working order. Maybe no. his battery was dead. Or right? it didn't have service. So either he was going to use the landline phone to avoid detection with phone records, or for whatever reason, you know, maybe his cell phone battery was dead. I mean, he already had car trouble earlier when he was, you know, most certainly given a stern warning by this trooper. So maybe he was still, you know, trying to find a way to get going on his way. Well, apparently investigators questioned an employee at the convenience store and learned that the employee had a felony record. They also tracked the owner of the Cadillac to Prescott, Arizona, where he was arrested and charged with possession of drugs. Apparently, a search of that Cadillac was conducted in Arizona using luminol, and an apparent red circle consistent with the shape of a head was found inside the trunk on the wheel well. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, luminol is an organic material used for forensic blood detection. Luminol is highly sensitive to blood and non-destructive to other forms of blood testing. So even after its application, it has no degradation effect on the blood it comes in contact with. So you can continue to DNA test it. It enhan- All it does, it just enhances the appearance of blood stains, allowing investigators to easily, easily document these blood patterns. Okay. Although investigators found an apparent bloodstain inside the trunk of the Cadillac, further testing did not reveal a DNA profile, unfortunately. The private investigator believes the Cadillac driver had Matt's body in the trunk when that trooper contacted him, but there's no information available to support that belief. The private investigator also theorized the Cadillac driver killed Matt, buried his body outside of the search area, and returned to the scene of the crime to move Matt's body. He also believes the driver of the Cadillac either asked to borrow Matt's forerunner or convinced Matt to drive him to Lenoke County to facilitate a drug deal. And when Matt figured out why the man wanted to use his forerunner, Matt changed his mind and tried to get away. And this is all a theory from the private investigator, right? right? So I wonder, 
Yeah. I wonder if that private investigator thinks that Matt knew that man then. I mean, that's an interesting theory, but again, I don't think it makes any sense. And so just think about it. Why would Matt willingly agree to take someone to Arkansas at the detriment of his schooling when he was only two weeks away from graduating? I mean, if this Cadillac driver had anything to do with Matt's disappearance, it makes a lot more sense that Matt was forced against his will to go to Arkansas. Not that he helped anybody or went on his own. Right. Because if he was going, as this you know private investigator theorizes, if he was going to help somebody facilitate some drug deal by letting him use his car, you know, or going with him, you know, he, he knows that he's not going to have enough time from eight o'clock in the morning to go all the way to Arkansas two hours away and then back and make his Spanish class. Exactly. So one of the most widely accepted theories related to this case is that Matt was carjacked in Memphis by someone who lived near Kerr Road in Arkansas because that's where his car was found and where that Cadillac was located by the trooper. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really interesting case because like you always say, people don't just vanish. I mean, I I still think that, you know, there's a lot of theories and I just think that foul play is, is my number one theory. You have a suicide theory, a silver elf theory where he's, you know, returning or going to nature to become immortal. You know, there's weird theory about this person who, you know, took him from Tennessee or Memphis all the way to Arkansas and, you know, later comes back and grabs his body with a Cadillac. To me, they don't make sense. I mean, the Cadillac one makes the most sense, but I think that it's just foul play because none of these theories, based on what we know, really embody Matt's behavior and the impending graduation. I mean, you know, his family and friends describe this character that is, you know, doesn't support any of those theories. Right. His his parents said that Matt would never just leave them hanging. Um, he was upbeat. He, you know, like you said, he was looking forward to graduation. He was working toward his goals. None of that really makes sense in regards to those theories. Yeah, I mean, and if you think about the silver elf theory, you know, I I don't know. I just, I know that people who are into like elves and renaissance stuff and, and dungeons and dragons and things like that. They, they, they write stuff. They're creative people. They have a creative mind. And so they, they engage in creative writing. They read stories about, you know, elves and stuff that isn't real. So I, I just, I just don't think, I think it's a huge leap is what I'm saying to say, Oh, well he has this journal entry about becoming immortal by going into water. What, just because his pants were wet? Now, let's let's think about this logically for a minute. Mm-hmm. His car was found in another state when he was dead set on his goals to graduate. And his clothes were found out of character in a folded manner that's not consistent with his behavior. Those are indications of foul play. Yeah, I mean, I think a sudden and unexpected disappearance makes the most sense in this case. Um, it kind of explains the strange location of his car and the, you know, normal behavior that he had just prior to his disappearance. Like, no, nobody reported anything out of the ordinary. Right. Everything seemed right. Up until he was on the phone with his friend up until 2 a.m. And every indication was that he was going to class the next day and everything was normal. So I, I agree that it's sudden and unexpected. Well, I know that. You know, people are going to say, well, just because he was upbeat doesn't mean he was 
not suicidal. We mentioned that and we, and I understand that, but what doesn't make sense is, you know, if he is suicidal, why would he be so interested in, you know, his short-term goals of finishing school and also his long-term goals? They're pretty well laid out to work for a nonprofit, to learn how to you how to create his own nonprofit. I get it. You know, people sometimes don't want anybody to pay attention to their behavior because they're afraid or they don't want them to know that they are suicidal. Like I get it. And I'm not saying that he didn't commit suicide. I'm just saying nothing that we have presented indicate that. I think jumping to the conclusion that he committed suicide is, is just a, an assumption with no facts, nothing to back it up. What? Because he talked about silver elves in a journal entry. Who knows how old that journal entry is? Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that it was written that day or even, you know, that semester for that matter. Yeah, exactly. I agree. So unfortunately, Mary Ellen passed away on June 13th of 2023 at the age of 76 Mary Ellen spent 22 and a half years of her life not knowing what happened to her son. Mary Ellen was married to Jeff for 52 years. Wow. And it would be so amazing for Jeff to finally find the answers he and Mary Ellen were most certainly seeking for all those years. So if you have any information at all about the disappearance of Matthew Pendergrast, please contact the Lanoke County Sheriff's Department at 501-676-3001. The Arkansas State Police at 501-618-8441 or the Arkansas State Police's hotline at 800-553-3820. Wow, thanks for presenting that. That's a great case. Um, It's certainly very mysterious. I mean, I, I don't know what happened to him, but I hope that somebody listening knows something. I think they do. And I hope that that person that has that little bit of information is willing to reach out, even if it's anonymous, just to give police that little bit of information to point them in the right direction, you know, to at least give Jeff some closure and and the rest of, of Matt's family. But, you know, it's sad enough that Mary Ellen died not knowing what happened to her son. Uh, you know, it would be really great to give Matt uh, Matt's dad some closure. So don't forget to head over to mysteriesandmimosas.net. Head over to our episode tab. There you'll find our source information, uh, some pictures that, that we have for your reference, and, of course, a method to contact us to give us those episode suggestions. And anything else? Am I missing anything? No, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Weird. Stop. <laughs> okay. All right, until next time, thank you for joining us on Mysteries and Mimosas podcast and signing off. Cheers. Cheers.